Welcome to See Uncovered, a place where you'll find the stories of proven entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Ashley Henschel. So welcome to Uncovered. Today we are speaking with David S. Rose. David is a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor, an author, and keynote speaker. Thank you for joining us, David. It's my pleasure to be here. Can you share a little bit about who you are and give us some background? Sure. I am actually a fifth generation entrepreneur. So it runs in the family. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, back in the dot-com boom in the 1990s, I was a finalist for the uh, ENY Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Um, But that's not remarkable. What's remarkable is that my father won it in 2002. Um, so my father is now, uh, he turns 92 on Halloween and he's going strong. Uh, and so I come from a, a long line of, of people who start their own business. But that being said, um, this is not something that everybody in my family does. I'm the one entrepreneur in this generation of my family. Um, and so, uh, being an entrepreneur, um, which I've now been one for my entire life, uh, and I've studied it, and I teach it, and I'm in the in a business of supporting other entrepreneurs. Um, I've learned quite a bit about it, and so there are realistically two types of entrepreneurs. There are people who are what we call natural born entrepreneurs, people like me, who I mean, I pop out saying, "Oh, let me go start a company." Uh, I actually started my first company when I was about ten or eleven years old. I then started companies all the way through high school, through college, through business school, the dot com boom, the dot com bust. At any given time, I'm starting one or two different companies uh, on an ongoing basis, and I've helped uh, over 100 others get started and invested in them and the like. So for a person like that, these natural-born entrepreneurs, um, you you know that pretty early on in life. You Basically, these are the kinds of people who start things. They start things because they see a need, and they just go out and do it. They could start a club at school. They could start a charitable thing for their, their church. They could do you know a club, a team, whatever. It's where they just go out and get things. They have a vision, and they start it, and they go to it. The other kind of entrepreneur that I've found uh, is what I call the self-made entrepreneur. And this is someone who is sort of entrepreneurial, who thinks about doing things on their own, doesn't have the, the hard wiring to go start something that people like, like me do, and typically goes and, and is, gets a, has a career and a job and learns about an industry. Um, and then at some point in their, maybe in their 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s, sometimes even later, they realize that they know this industry that they're in very, very well. They have a lot of what we call domain expertise. um, And they think that they see a problem and they come up with a solution. And they then very rationally and pragmatically start a company to go fill that need. So there are two these two very, very different tracks in starting a company and being an entrepreneur. One is, is done almost because you're a crazy person and that's just the way you think and you go starting companies because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. And the other is a rational decision that you isn't based on you knowing an industry and seeing a need and 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 filling it. So I, I am very much of the former uh, category. Uh, and so um, when I was in uh, in high school, I created an after school film program. When I was in college, I ran the undergraduate printing presses and print shop at my university. Um, I started a computer training company uh, after I got out of school. Um, I was in the real estate business uh, with, with a job, but I started a company on the side uh, that got into, that did wireless messaging. And that eventually got 
venture capital funding and got very, very big. Um, and uh, we created a whole lot of new innovation uh, around that. And then the dot-com crash came around, which was a very bad time when all tech companies disappeared. And so we, we crashed and burned. Uh, and at that point, I went over to the dark side, as we call it, and became an investor. And so I started investing in early stage companies, um, people like me. Basically, my wife did not think I should go start another company again. Uh, so, I, so as an investor, I helped to found not only to fund early stage companies, but I founded a group of other people who were investing in companies and an angel investing group. And I got very involved in organizing that because entrepreneurs just organize things and start things. Uh, and then having done that, I realized that the whole business of investing in startup companies was very inefficient. Mm -hmm. So I finally got permission to start another company. So I started a company to make that process easier. And that's known as, as GUST, G-U-S-T. Yeah. So GUST today is the internet online platform that powers most of the world's organized groups of early stage angel investors um, and lets uh, companies apply to them for funding and lets all the members of the investment group look at the company and, and then get together and make an investment decision. And so because of that, um, we have uh, plugs in, we, we power over 750 angel investor networks around the world. And because all of the uh, founders and entrepreneurs who come to them looking for funding sort of come through our system, mm -hmm. it's a bit like the common app for colleges. So you come into our system, we've had well over 1 million entrepreneurs um, create profiles on, on Gust and use that to apply for funding. So mm -hmm. today our deal flow, which is what we call the number of companies who, who come onto our system, uh, every month is about 10,000 companies every month, 10,000 new startups create a profile on our, our Gust platform and then go off and, and um, apply for funding for that. And then so starting from that basis, we then did a bunch of other things. We realized that a lot of these early stage companies weren't even incorporated yet. They were looking for funding and they weren't incorporated. So we said, okay, well, we can fix that. And so we created a whole new category of business uh, called company as a service. So if you're starting a high growth company, you can just come on to Gust and press a button. It's called Gust Launch. And we launch your company for you. We incorporate your company. We do all the legal work around it. We register with the government. We uh, help you issue stock to your co-founders. And we give you all kinds of tools and services and discounts to start your company up. Uh, and so we're doing that. And then, because um, that's not enough, uh, we also are getting into connecting investors and, and, uh, and people you know, who have um, things to invest in. And so we started a real estate investment platform because my remember my one of my original jobs was in real estate. Uh, and then we realized that that really didn't have too much to do with startup companies. So we spun that out. And so today I am all of these things. I am the founder and CEO of the U.S. real estate market. I'm the founder and I'm the executive chairman of Gust. I am the founder and chairman emeritus of New York Angels, our large angel investing group here in New York. And then along the way, I wrote a couple of books to help both angel investors and founders. So I wrote my first book was called Angel Investing, The Gus Guide to Making Money and Having Fun Investing in Startups. So that's being used by most of the angel groups in the world as their instruction book for investors as to how to be an investor. And then I wrote a book for entrepreneurs, for startup founders, called The Startup Checklist, 25 Steps to a Scalable High-Growth Business. And that's been used by over 500 universities in the U.S. as a textbook for their entrepreneurship programs. Uh, and all kinds of folks have, have uh, gotten that book to see 
all this actual steps it takes to start a company about incorporation and building your team and writing your business plan and your business model and raising money and, and so on and so forth. So that's what I do in a very, very big nutshell. I am a startup entrepreneur who starts companies, and I've got a bunch of companies that I've started and I'm running. I am an early stage investor who invests in early stage companies. I've invested in probably 120 companies. I was the first investor in a company called uh, Comixology that was eventually acquired by Amazon and became Amazon's comics division. I was the first investor and chairman of the board of a company called uh, Jump Bikes, which was acquired by Uber and became Uber Bikes. Uh, and a bunch of other things uh, like that. So invest in companies, start companies, run companies, write books about investing and starting and running companies, uh, and then do a fair amount of teaching and uh, webinars and interviews like this to try and get the word out and help other people who are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. What a phenomenal career you've had. I'm honestly blown away with all the projects you are in and different career paths you have gone down like an entrepreneur does, um, what would you say was the most takeaway with starting all these companies? Um, how did you juggle all your projects? The answer is, I'm not very good at juggling projects. And most entrepreneurs are not very good at juggling projects. And so entrepreneurs typically, the, these, these natural members, there are the two types of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. The second type of entrepreneur, the self-made entrepreneur, is actually pretty good at it because they're really focused and rational mm -hmm. and doing it reasonably. The first type of entrepreneur, the ones who just have to go out and start companies, are not generally very good at, at managing this. So I just continue to add things on until it breaks, which is not a great way of doing it. Mm -hmm. but, there, but there is one thing that, you know, if you are somebody who, who thinks that you just have this urge, this need to go out and start a company to create this business, um, then do it. That's the most important thing, right? And, and, the, and that actually is the number one differentiator between what we call entrepreneurs, people who want to start a company, but never quite get around to doing it and real entrepreneurs. And by the way, there are not that many natural born entrepreneurs. It's only about 1% of the population. So that's one out of a hundred in each generation of my family. There, there's been one person here, right? Yeah. Um, and so that one person out of a hundred who is just constitutionally psychically set up to go start a company, A, they have to start start things because that's what they do. Um, and uh, But B, they tend to just go out and start it regardless of whether it makes sense or not, regardless of whether, whether they should or shouldn't or people advise them to or not. And that's part of being an entrepreneur, which is getting something actually started. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking about it and reading about it and writing about it and talking to people about it, but never actually starting a business, you might want to take that as a sign from above that maybe you should be working in a startup for somebody else yeah. or around it or doing something or getting a job and learning an industry. Uh, and then from within, after you are familiar with the industry, then going and creating a company. But typically, these natural born entrepreneurs that I've discussed are people who at early ages, you know, five, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years old are out there starting companies. And the most important thing about being an entrepreneur is not realistically the planning and it's not the market you're in and it's not the people you hire and it's not the money you raised. It's starting. It's just getting a business started. Of course, then you have to have all the other things happen. Otherwise you're going to fail. Um, but 
the biggest problem with entre- with people who say they want to be entrepreneurs is that they don't actually get around to starting something. And so as speaking as an investor who invests in companies that start business in, in, that are starting up, I will always take somebody who has actually started, they put their own energy and time and often money into getting their business started and help that person figure out how to do it sort of correctly in the right way and, and and tweak it and so on and so forth, rather than take somebody who says, well, I have this idea. And if you give me money, then I'll go start the business. Those kinds of people actually don't get funded. The people who get funded are people who have actually started something on their own, some way, somehow, by themselves, with friends, with their own money, their savings, with whatever. But the most important thing is to start. Before Gus um, opened up, how were entrepreneurs and companies funding, getting funded? The answer is very, very inefficient. Um, And so typically there's a sequence in funding. You know, if you watch the Silicon Valley on TV or or go to all these shows or read all the blogs and Entrepreneur Magazine and Fast Company and so on and so forth, you know, it seems like, oh, I have an idea. Oh, wait, here, give me $100 million and I'll go do my idea. It doesn't work that way. Um, It's actually very, very tough to get funding. Uh, And so therefore the large majority the majority, that means most companies, more than half of companies that get started, get started with only money from the founder, him or herself. Mm-hmm. So you start it with your own money because nobody else is going to invest in your company. And yeah. that accounts for a majority, more than half of all startups. Yeah. The next level of startups for those companies that manage to get funding from somebody other than the founder, the next largest by far group is what are known as friends and family or an FNF round, or friends, family, and fools. Or these days, it's sometimes referred to as a hustle round. And this is anybody who will give you cash. Typically, people who are investing at the hustle round are people who know you because they're related to you, like your mother um, or your brother or something. Uh, And they like you and they want to help you. And that's why they're investing. Not because they're great business geniuses, but because they trust you and they have faith in you and they want to help you move forward. Sort of like an old barn raising when a whole community would get together and build a house or or a barn for somebody. Um, And so uh, that's where the next large, large group, um, by far the majority of the remainder, get their funding from friends and family. Um, and so right there between um, founder funding and friends and family funding, you have accounted uh, for something like, you know, 97 uh, percent of uh, all companies that get funded. And so the, the there are some companies that are the right kind of company that can be growing very, very big because starting up a company is very, very risky. And the majority of companies that get started up fail. And I don't just mean they don't do very well. They fail. I mean, completely splat with all the money gone. And so therefore, you can imagine the people who are rational investors and looking to invest money in companies don't want to see all their money gone. So they therefore try and invest in companies that they think have a possibility of actually making it big, but not because the risk of the company failing is so big to balance out their investment decision. The reward, if the company succeeds, has to be even bigger, has to be really, really big. And so that means that the only kinds of companies that really are investable, that can get investments from other you know, outside investors, um, are companies that could potentially be enormous, that could grow really, really fast. And what that means typically is the next range after for your friends and family 
are people like me who are angel investors. And angel investors model their investments to return over 30 times the initial investment. Mm-hmm. And so that means if I'm investing, um, think about it, $100,000 in your company, right? When I you know, when you sell the company, which I hope is going to happen within six or seven years, you know, often won't, but that's what I hope, um, that, that my $100,000 investment will not return, you know, 30%, which is $30,000. It won't return 100%, which is $100,000. Yeah. It won't return 300%, which would be $300,000, right? It has to return three, 30 times, mm-hmm. which is 3,000%, yeah. which is $3 million. So if I put in a million dollars your company, <clears throat> I am only going to invest in companies where I believe there is a decent chance of that company returning me back a million dollars in a, in several years. And that's why angel investing is not right <clears throat> for every company. It's not even right for most companies. Um, it's only right for companies that are that very strange sort of often technology enabled companies because they can grow really, really big um, company that can, that can start small with my little angel investment and grow very, very big. Uh, and so that's the goal for angel investing, which means that you have to figure out if you want to start a business, what kind of business do you want to start? Yeah. Because there are these two different types of businesses. One type are these high growth startups that I just described that mm-hmm. are, will be able to get funding, maybe if they're lucky, from outside investors. But those investors are looking for a 30 times return. So it better be a very giant scalable business. But the other type of business is the actually the backbone of American business. That's what I call the small independent business. And this is most businesses that people think about. This is the shoe repair store, the coffee shop, the yoga studio, the graphic design firm, the small manufacturing company. These are all independent businesses that are owned by their founders, and they can make very good money. And if you start up one of those companies, and it can often grow you know, relatively fast to a size where you're, you have revenues because you're selling product and you're making money from those sales because they're profitable. Um, and those kinds of businesses can turn out hundreds of thousands of dollars or even millions of dollars a year for the founder. But they're not the kind of business that can be invested by outside investors because they will never return 30 times, 30 times that kind of money, right? So therefore, those are the two paths in starting a business. Just as there are two paths in life, you know, are you, do you want to start a company or not? Okay, if you want to start a company, are you a natural born entrepreneur where you're just going to go out and start it regardless of what? Or are you going to really actually learn stuff first and grow up and then start it? Those are the two types. And then once you've decided to start a business, is are you a high growth startup where you're looking to go out and get funding from ultimately after you get the company started from angels and VCs and go public or be acquired in a big company? Or are you creating a solid, small, independent business where you might have employees, a physical location, a store, a factory, a plant, whatever it is, it will grow more slowly over time, but ultimately create real value for you, yourself, and your family? And again, that's a very long-winded answer, but you asked. As an angel investor, how do you determine if a company is going to make 30 times? At the beginning, well, if I could figure that one out, all of my companies that I invested would make 30 times of my money, right? If you look at the, at the actual outcomes, mm-hmm. it turns out that for a typical professional serious angel investor of the 10 companies in which if they invest in 10 companies of those 10, five of them are going to fail completely. 
And that's no matter the best analysis I can do. And as you know, I'm very experienced in here and looking at the company and looking at the business model, interviewing the founders and running the numbers and doing the reference checks with the best diligence that I can do. Half of them will fail completely and take all my money. There's always okay? Well, of, of the remaining five that aren't going to fail, that's good. Yeah. Two of those at the end of five or six years will just give me back the money I put in because they'll have a, a product they can sell their product to some the company or the assembly line or people can will invest buy them just to hire their employees. And so I don't make any money. I just get back the money I put in. So that's two more. Yeah. Now we're at seven out of 10. Well, then it turns out that uh, two of these companies are actually likely to make a profit and do really well. And mm-hmm. they will ultimately likely get sold for two or three times the amount I put in. So if I put in 100000 I might get back two or $300,000 of that. And that's a nice investment. If I could get that all day long, I, I would take it. The only Why problem not? is that's only for two out of the 10 companies. Mm-hmm. And so then if you put all that together and I'm now out nine, you know, uh, nine companies out of my 10, I have effectively, if you factor in all the time value of money and so on, I have effectively ended up right back where I started with nine out of my 10 companies having exited, which means that that 30X has to come from that last one company. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we look at companies and we say, is it the, is the market you're in a large market and a growing market? Um, do you have a secret sauce that will enable you to appropriately address it in a way that somebody else hasn't? Yeah. You have the right people on your team to go do this. Is the product right? Do customers like it? Do you know how to get to your customers? All those kinds of things factor in to us figuring out whether we should invest or not. How, what tools or skills have you used that contributed to your success? Well, in, increasingly, we're seeing um, the idea of of online platforms, tools platforms, SaaS platforms yeah. um, being, you know, making life much easier in some way to start a company. When I began my first company, my, my first internet company, we had to have our own servers and we had to have a whole room with refrigeration units devoted to big racks of servers to run our things. You'd be crazy to do that today. Nobody does that today. Instead, there are these giant data centers where I can just call up um, Amazon Web Services or Heroku or somebody and say, okay, turn on another computer. And they just turn on another computer. Yeah. So those kinds of, of uh, SaaS businesses, software as a service, um, are increasingly useful. And because things change and all the time, they're always being upgraded. They're always getting better. It used to be in the old days, you would buy a piece of software and you would and it would come on a disk and you'd install that on your local computer. And that disk would, you know, it would, would you know, you'd use that program for, you know, years, two years, three years, five years. But it turns out that the pace of technological change is advancing. It's getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And so therefore, because all software is now being updated all the time, instead of buying a piece of software and just paying once for it, what many people are doing now is they are subscribing to software. So whether you're subscribing to Microsoft Office or, or Google uh, Google Office or anything like that, you're effectively paying each month for the privilege of using um, their technology. And those kinds of, of tools are amazing. The kind of things you would do now in terms of connect uh, connection, communication, collaboration, um, communities that you can join through, these are all really, really big things that are now being enabled by technology. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, how important is financial literacy in terms of business and personal life, in your opinion? Financial literacy is absolutely, positively, critically important because the essence of business, which differentiates business from a charity or a religion or a hobby, the essence of business is that business exists to make money for the business owners. Mm -hmm. And you can only make money 
if you understand how the money comes in and how the money goes out, um, it's, it's easy to sell you know dollar bills if you're selling them for 99 cents, but you're not making any money, although you might have a lot of sales, right? Yeah. Um, and so the goal is uh, to absolutely have a basic understanding of finance and you understand things like COGS, C-O-G-S, the cost of goods sold. What, what does it cost you every time somebody buys one of your shoes or cookies or whatever? Um, then there is CAC, customer acquisition cost. How much will it take you to get a customer in the door to actually buy? That's sort of like sales and stuff, mm-hmm. right? Then there's LTV, lifetime value. Will this customer only buy for you months or will they come back and buy a second time and a third time and then tell their friends? Mm-hmm. That's a very valuable customer, right? And so so therefore, all of these things are just one teeny weeny itsy bitsy part of financial literacy. But the basics of financial literacy are understanding the difference between revenues and profits, between long-term you know, fixed costs and variable costs, all those kinds of things. So I went to business school and I actually have an, a master's of business administration in finance, which is very helpful. You don't need that. But your basic financial literacy, if you, um, you know, yeah. for business is critical. Critical. I wanted to thank you for being on CEO Uncovered. Thanks for listening to CEO Uncovered. You can check out more at www.createeveryopportunity.org. Thanks again.